0: So yeah, we probably want to turn to Romans chapter 9 now, um, and we're going to look at it together, and so we I'm going to structure this is a little bit like it for those, how many here have been to one of the other talks in this seminar stream this week? So most of the people near the front, good, okay. So what I did the other day, although I know a bit of it went wrong, but we, we went through sort of various factors or considerations you need to bear in mind when you're considering texts like this, I want to do that today. And then, So basically you can walk through five considerations, which I hope will answer quite a lot of the questions, and then leave space for the questions that are unanswered at the end. That's how I'm going to try and do it. But to help keep track of things, because I'm making a lot of references to different parts of the Bible, I am going to project things up here. So there'll be quite a lot of text up here, which you may not all be able to read, but... It in some ways, it doesn't matter if you don't, because I'll say it anyway, but I just, it's going to be valuable to have it. Um, and if you are really keen to be the kind of person who can see the screen, there is still some space down here if you would like to come and sit here. Um, but yeah, so we're going to be in Romans 9, and they've gone eerily quiet next door. Or then normally you can hear them booming through at this point, or even singing, as we had the other day. So um, I don't think that will happen today. Um, so yeah, so Romans chapter 9, and what I want to do first off, is, um, so I presume you've read it. That's why you're here. You've read Romans 9 and heard that it's a, heard that it's a challenge. Um, and it is. It's, it's actually the first passage that um, I ever heard a friend of mine who I really... In fact, she's here. She's, now, she's my age, 36, got three kids and, you know, great, great Christian woman. But when we were about 19, it was the first time I'd ever heard someone say, oh, that chapter in the Bible, I just don't read it. Because uh, it really annoys me and it makes me angry and I don't understand it. So what I do is I read to the end of Romans 8... Nothing can separate us from the love of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? Boom. And then I jump into Romans 10. I just miss Romans 9 because it makes me so angry. And I don't know if anybody here has ever had that. That was the most kind of blunt I've seen it. But I actually think there's something in quite a few of us that may recoil as well from some of the things that are said here. And I think it's just helpful in that sense to put it in a better context. And so what I want to do at the start is just sketch a little bit about what Paul is doing in this whole letter. Uh, as, he's, as he begins Romans 9, what's he trying to achieve? What's, he, what's going on? And what's is happening is that Paul, having, uh, Paul is writing to a church in Rome, and he's, among many other things, he's trying to get them to support him in his mission to Spain. And in order to do that, he needs to explain why the gospel is for everybody and not just for people who already believe it. And in order to do that, he wants to show how the gospel brings Jew and Gentile together, and you'd never have expected that Gentiles would become Christians, but they have. And also, you'd never expect that Jews wouldn't have become Christians, and some of them haven't. And that is the problem that he begins to deal with in Romans 9 to 11. His question in this whole section really is, why have so many Jews rejected the gospel? Has God broken his covenant? What's going on? So you're, nowadays, you would say, well, Christians and Jews are different sorts of people. And you might, I don't know what you get in your mind when you, I say Jews, but you may think of people with hats and long curly sideburns and black cloaks, Hasidim. You may think of Jewish people that you know, Jewish friends of yours. You may think of pockets of North London or New York City or Israel. I don't know how you imagine it, but you probably think of Jews, most of us do, as being just British people, Jews as being somebody other than who we are as Christians. You may think of Jewish as primarily an ethnic thing or a religion that's different from Christianity. And what you've got to get your head around initially is that in Paul's day, that was not true at all. In Paul's day, most Christians were Jews as well. Jewish Christians were the main thing, and the surprise was not, oh, a Jewish Christian. The surprise was, oh, a Gentile Christian, in Paul's day. So, how many people in this room are not ethnically Jewish? Hands up. Right? Almost everybody. Um, so, you would have been the odd ones out in many in the first few years of the church. By the time this letter was written, there was quite a lot of us, as in non-Jewish people. Um, but it was still we were still you know, probably tied, and the majority of the leaders in the church were very much Jewish. So there was a kind of complex social situation early on, and the question that rose in Paul's day was, so how do we make theological sense of the fact that lots of Jewish people are not following Jesus? What's going on there? That's the question that drives him to write these letters, these these chapters. And so he begins in Romans 9, 1. You know, I speak the truth in Christ. My conscience declares it in the Spirit. I I would rather be cut off from Jesus in order to let the Jews get saved than anything else. I am so desperate for them to become believers that I would be prepared to be separated from Jesus myself if they could. He's so animated by the salvation, because Paul's a Jew himself. Jesus is a Jew. Peter's a Jew. Paul's a Jew. All of the key leaders are Jews. And he's so desperate for them that he was just like, I want you to know my heart. I want them all to be saved. But then from verse 6 onwards, he begins to deal with the question, how do we make sense of it, given that God made a promise to Abraham and said, your seed, your offspring are going to bless the world, how do we make sense of the fact that a lot of them currently are not followers of Christ? What, what is the explanation? And he asks the question, Romans 9, 6, it, well, he effectively answers the question, it is not as if the word of God has failed. And what he's trying to do in these chapters, this is an overview of the whole of Romans 9 to 11. What he's trying to do is defend God's word and say God hasn't broken his promise. It might sound like he has, but he hasn't. But the, ch- the question you would ask if you were in the mid-50s AD with Paul, you would have said, Paul, God made a promise to Abraham and said these guys will all be a blessing to the nations, and now lots of them have rejected Christ. Does that mean that God's promise has been broken? It's all very well you saying, nothing can separate us from the love of God, but how do we know because it looks to me like the Jews have been, or a lot of them have? How do we make sense of that? And so Paul's goal in these chapters is to try and explain why God hasn't broken his word or his covenant in spite of the unbelief of modern day Jews. So his big question, why have so many Jews rejected the gospel? Has God broken his covenant? And he says no, and he kind of gives four reasons in this section, in this large section. No. Reason number one, if you look back in history, you will find that ethnic Israel has always, in other words, the people who have, let's be honest about it, not got foreskins, right? Circumcised, as in you've been born into a Jewish family, you had your foreskin chopped off on the eighth day, or your father had and you're a girl, right? But generally, you are, you are in ethnic Israel, but ethnic Israel has always included some people who are faithful, or believing people, and some who aren't. So Elijah, in Elijah's day, is saying, I am one, I'm the only one left. He's saying to God, he's crying out in anger, actually saying, God, what's going on? I'm the only one left. And God says, there's actually 7,000 people left who are Christian, who are not Christians, who are followers of God, who are worshipping the Lord, and who have not rejected him. But Paul's point here is, look, if you go back right back to the beginning. Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, you will find that people descended from Abraham have always been a mix. Some of them have been believers and some of them haven't been. So God hasn't broken his word because God never actually said that every individual ethnic Jew was going to be a follower of the Lord. In fact, if you look back to the start of our story, Paul's saying, you'll find that Isaac was and Ishmael wasn't, and Jacob was and Esau wasn't, and that's always been true. So don't don't act like God has to save every single Jewish person or every single descendant of Abraham. Right, that's argument number one. Argument number two, Israel doesn't actually have a right to election in the first place. Election means choice. Israel doesn't have a right to be chosen. That's what he's trying to do. Now, so you and I read Romans 9 and we immediately think, oh, my mum who isn't a Christian or my friend who isn't a Christian. That, it's not irrelevant to that, but that isn't what Paul is doing. Paul is not talking about a Gentile person's mother primarily. That's not his goal. His goal is to say, no, actually, the nation of Israel isn't, doesn't, is not entitled to be saved. And individual Jewish people are not entitled to be saved. If they are, that's because of God's mercy. But that's down to God, not down to our earning or deserving it. And he tracks that through with the story of Pharaoh and so on, which we'll look at in a moment. Then, argument number three, the reason why lots of Jewish people are not following Christ is because they have stumbled over faith in Christ. The new covenant in Jesus has now begun and they don't, They are acting as if it hasn't. They are acting as if works of the law still save and they don't. They are acting as if works of the law mark off who's in God's people and they don't. And because of that, it's actually in hearing the gospel, they, instead of seeing him as a stone that you build your house on, like a foundation stone, they have instead, or a cornerstone, Like we would sing. right? Instead of treating him that way, they have treated him like a stumbling stone. They have actually like a stone in your shoe. You get in your flip-flops and you go, ow, ow, ow. And you eventually get rid of it and throw it out. They're saying they have stumbled or tripped over the stone. And the stone is Jesus. They're saying they, they should have built their house on him. And a lot of them haven't. They've actually tripped on him instead, which the prophets always said would happen. So it's actually, they have heard the gospel, but it's their own unbelief that has led them to this place. Right? So... It's always included a mix. They don't have any right to election anyway. It's, an issue of, it's always been an issue of faith. And if you don't believe, you don't, you're not entitled to the gospel either. And then finally, let, you've got to bear in mind at a lot of length in Romans 11, God hasn't finished with Israel. You can't stop the story now, Paul is saying. You can't stop the story where we are today and go, oh, look, there we go. The gospel, some Jews believe, some don't. Oh, obviously the Jews have lost their place completely and it's now all about Gentiles. Paul is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't stop the story in the wrong place. In the end, you will find countless Israelites and Jews will will be restored. He said, I'm a Jew. I care about this. And actually, he uses the analogy of a a tree. And he says that, effectively, you've got like a, a tree with natural branches, which is Israel. And then you've got unnatural branches have been grafted in, which you can do in horticulture. You graft one branch into another kind of plant sometimes. Paul's saying, you and I, those of us who are Gentiles, most of us, we've been kind of stuck in against nature into a Jewish tree praise God we've been allowed to participate in Israel where God's purposes are but actually some of them have been broken off because they didn't believe and then Paul says if they repent and come back God will graft them back in again and you'd better watch out because if Gentiles act like we've got it all and yeah we're fine you might find yourself broken off so be careful So God hasn't finished with Israel, they have been hardened temporarily, like for a period of time, so that salvation would go to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, this is the mystery of the divine plan. So I'm just going to turn there. If you want to just flick to um, Romans chapter 11, because I think there's a key verse here that really helps us understand Romans 9, actually. A lot of people read Romans 9 on its own, and like my friend, they get so angry with it, they just go, I'm not going to read that again and skip it, without realizing that Romans 9 and Romans 11 and Romans 10 are all making the same kind of point. So if you just turn in, turn through to Romans 11, um, and you'll find it's a, it's a very helpful helpful text at explaining what's going on here. So ele- Romans 11:25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now that, although it's in Romans 11, is in some ways a very good summary of a lot of Romans 9. A partial hardening, right? So not everybody, not everybody's been hardened. Some of them are believers. A partial hardening has come so that, but it's not without a purpose. It's in order that the gospel might go to the Gentiles. And when it does and Gentiles respond, Israel will become jealous and think, wow, our God is being worshiped by those people. Maybe we should worship him too. And Israel will be restored and both Jew and Gentile together will be saved. That's, that's the big picture. So spent a while on that just to say that is, before you even go into verse by verse, that is what is going on in Romans 9 to 11, okay? Now, let's just turn back to Romans 9 now. I imagine that's, you're pretty nearby anyway. So back a couple of pages or down a couple of scrolls, okay? And so I'm missing miss out verses 1 to 5, which is I'm gutted about this and they have privileges and I wish they could respond. This is verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this is Paul saying, hey, it's not the case that every ethnic descendant has always been a believer, because Abraham had two children. Isaac was the, the child of promise, Ishmael wasn't. And so he, so he says, it's, it's not the case that being descended from the right father makes you a believer. That's never been true. It's not true now. And it wasn't even true when you were Abraham's son yourself. Verse 8, this means it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year I'll return and Sarah will have a son. So he's referring, Abraham, Sarah is his wife. They have two, two boys. Ishmael is the older one. Isaac is the younger one. Isaac becomes, if you like, the child of promise. Ishmael is not. And Paul's saying, that's been true from the beginning. So don't start turning around now and going, oh, has God broken his word? He's been, this has been the case since the beginning. Verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebekah, okay, so this is now Isaac's wife, Rebekah, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So again, saying this principle extends to the next generation as well. So you have two boys born of the same mother at the same time. They're twins. You can't even say, oh no, well, Sarah was Isaac's mom and Hagar was Ishmael's mom. Different moms. Say, no, no, no. Same mom, Rebecca. Same dad, Isaac. Born at the same time, twins. And even then, God chose one to be the means of blessing to the world and not the other one. Now, at that point, most of us go, I cannot believe Esau I hated. I can't cope with that. Now, you've got to bear in mind two things about it. One is, that's a quote from, a, from Malachi in which Jacob and Esau represent nations. Okay, So it's Jacob as in Israel versus Esau as in Edom. So when you read the, the original quote, that's what's happening. Second thing is, it sounds like favoritism of one brother over another. But what you've got to remember is that the, it's always the older brother who's the favorite. In ancient culture and in the Old Testament. It's always the older brother gets the double portion, right? So if you three boys and you are my children and I'm the patriarch, right? Four kids, right? I divide it up into five portions, right? And you get one and you get one and you get one and you're the first one, you get two. Right? That's how the ancient world works. That's how Israel works. And what Paul is doing is saying, in this case, it's the younger brother who gets the inheritance and not the older one. He's, he's not picking the favorites. He's picking the underdog. He's picking the one who isn't the favorite and honoring and privileging him rather than the one that you'd expect. And that is the way that God works, Paul is saying. So we've got this... What he, and the reason he's making that point is not to say, therefore God creates some people hating them from beginning to end. The point is to say, what God does is in choosing some of his people for his divine purposes to bring blessing to others, he chooses a Jacob, an underdog, over an Esau. And, he, and actually, he's always done that. He's always used some people to bring his saving blessings to the world, and not everybody. And so you can't turn around now and say, oh, what's going on here with these guys? You've got to begin by understanding, no, God has always used some as a means of blessing to the rest. And in the case of Jacob and Esau, they gave birth to nations, who, some, one of whom was then used as a means of blessing, and the other one of whom was not, and actually became an enemy of God's people and faced judgment. Okay? So the first thing we've got to consider is the big picture of Romans 9 to 11. Second thing we've got to consider, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and how this story actually works, right? A lot of text here, and don't worry, I'll, I'll say it so you don't have to read it all. Read on from verse 14, though, in Romans 9 for a minute with me. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. So he brings in Pharaoh and says, I have deliberately raised you up as a means of Israel being freed, and I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that is the second thing that really bothers people. They think, so does that mean God has taken my mum or my friend or whatever and actively forced them not to believe? They're desperate to believe inside going, I want to believe, I want to believe. And God has said, no, you shall not believe because I'm going to judge you. Is that what happened to Pharaoh and is that what happens to us? That's the question people ask. And I think the answer is no, but I want to explain why. Why? So, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart raises the question, and it's also quoted in the most famous New Testament passage to address the issue, which is where we are now. In chronological order, this is what happens in the Exodus story. Exodus 3. I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I'll do in it, and after that, he'll let you go. I have to say this at this point. My son, at the moment, is six, and he's autistic, and he just loves the story of... That Pharaoh for some reason he just thinks Pharaoh is the good guy and we're trying to convince him that he's not but he does and so he just walks he's the kind of boy who will walk down the street quoting bits of the kids bible and shouting at random strangers he did it with herod for a while it was really embarrassing he'd walk down the street and go go and find the boy i will be the only king of the jews and just shouting at random people outside tesco's it was really embarrassing and at the moment he's in a pharaoh phase and so he and he likes the naughty ones in every story when it was joseph and his brothers he'd always be like and reuben and simeon and levi and judah they threw joseph down a dry well they are naughty he loves the naughty ones and in this case he's quoting pharaoh all the time and so when you tell him off at the moment he goes no i do not Know your God. He which is what Pharaoh says in the story. So, I just had to drop that in. Nothing relevant to this. But anyway, Pharaoh's the villain. Pharaoh's the baddie. Oh, and the other day, that's right. He tried to blame Pharaoh. And my wife just she put it on Twitter. She just said, "No, it wasn't me. It was Pharaoh." And then, close quotes, and then she went, nice choice of baddie, but not very convincing for whoever just kicked the dishwasher, uh, which is where he's at. So he's always blaming Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh in the story is introduced as somebody who God says, I know that he is not going to let you go unless he is compelled to. Right? That's where the story begins. Then, chapter 4, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so he won't let the people go. So in this text... He's saying, Pharaoh is not going to let you go unless he's forced to. And then in Exodus 4, he's saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. You think, well, which is it? Is Pharaoh the one who's not going to do it because of his own sin? Or is God forcing him not to? What's going on? Chapter 7, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But then seven thirteen to 14, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Seven twenty-two: Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. But when Pharaoh, chapter 8, when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart. So it's now very confusing. You think it said it was... It's Pharaoh doing it, then God doing it, then Pharaoh doing it, then God doing it, then Pharaoh doing it. But when, Sarah thought there was, when Pharaoh thought that, saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Oh, right. So now it's God again. What's going on? But when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Finally, in Chapter 10, 20, 27, 11, 10, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now the reason I'm listing them all like that is because I want you to see that the writer has deliberately written the story in such a way as to show you that our, that Pharaoh's sin and God hardening Pharaoh's heart are re- very closely related and you're not in a position to say it was Pharaoh, not God, and it was God, not Pharaoh. The writer doesn't let you do that. The writer says Pharaoh was going to do it and God knew he would, and at the same time God is involved in that process in ensuring that it happens in order to bring about his purposes. Now, we don't like that. We find that very puzzling. We think mentally it doesn't make sense. Surely Pharaoh is responsible for his sin and it's got nothing to do with God or God is responsible for his sin and it's got nothing to do with Pharaoh. And that is not the way the Bible thinks. Say the Bible thinks, you know, that's not the way the writer here thinks and it's not the way Paul thinks. So when you read Romans chapter nine, the second thing you have to bear in mind is that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is done for the purpose of freeing Israel. So it's for blessing actually. But Pharaoh in that sense is because of his own sin, collateral damage in bringing about the liberation of Israel so however many millions of Jews leave and get free because of one man's sin he is hardened in his sin by God but he was sinning anyway so do you see it's both and I think that's a second factor to bear in mind third factor to bear in mind potters pots and promises we have to continue reading in Romans 9 the last two will deal with a bit more of the sort of philosophical problems we have right so we're now, we've just read up to verse 18, now we're going to read verse 19. You will say to me then, right? So let's assume that the Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and Pharaoh and Israel story represents what happens in our own generation when Israel is rejecting the gospel, right? So bear in mind, this is still his question. Why is that happening? And the, right, the, the reader would now say, hang on, if that's true, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Pharaoh and Israel surely no one can do anything about that it's got nothing to do with us then if god is doing hardening then a jew who is hardened in their own sin can't do anything about it can they isn't that unjust verse 19 you'll say to me then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will but who are you O man to answer back to god will what is molded say to its molder why have you made me like this Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory from vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he's called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. And then the rest of the chapter is quotes from the Old Testament to demonstrate that that's what God's doing. Now, a lot of us misunderstand the pot-potter thing, I think. I think this is quite quite easy to misunderstand, because the picture, without reading it in its original context, the picture can sound like it's an entirely arbitrary moment in God where he just picks up some lumps and goes, well, I'm going to make you into this kind of a pot, bully for you, and I'm going to make you into that kind of a thing, which is just like a horrible vessel, and then I'm going to smash you and take joy in doing it. Without reading it in its old testament context it's very easy to see it as if that's what's happening but bear in mind again two things firstly paul's big picture is trying to demonstrate what demonstrate why it's not unjust of god to harden jews in order that the gospel might go to the gentiles that's what he's doing in these in these texts the second thing to bear in mind is that the passage from which that pot potter thing comes in jeremiah uses the analogy of a potter and his pot to describe the relationship between God and Israel. And in what happens, if you just turn with me to Jeremiah 18, I don't want you to take my word for it. Jeremiah 18. Often when you discovered puzzling things in the Bible, other texts shed light on what's going on in ways that can make a better sense of it. So we have to read Jeremiah 18. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise, go down to the potter's house and there I'll let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do, right? So there's an, this is an analogy, right? The potter is working away, and he's spinning at the wheel, and then the, the pot goes wrong, and he goes, all right, I'll discard that and start on another one. Then, verse 5, then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, Can't I do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I'll pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if the nation concerning which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom, I'll build it and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I'll relent of the good I'd intended to do it. What God is saying is, just like this potter, when he sees this pot spoiled in his hand, can put it to one side and start a new one, I, as God, am entitled. If, having said, I'm going to bless this nation and then see that they reject me, I can reconsider the good I was going to do them because of their sin and judge them. And if a nation which was rebellious against me and I said, I'm going to judge them, they repent, then I'll say, actually, now I will bless them. I'm allowed to do that because I'm God. Can anybody think of an example of the second category of a nation that God had said, I'm going to judge you all, and they repent, and God blesses them? Nineveh with Jonah, right? That is the story of Jonah. Jonah is the story of the second of these two things happening. Well, actually, it's the first in in Jeremiah, right? It's the story of exactly that happening. Nation is under judgment. God says, I'm going to judge you. The nation goes, no, we repent, and God blesses them. And he's saying the opposite is also possible. I am completely entitled similarly to declare that I'm going to save and rescue a people. And if they harden themselves in sin and reject me, I am entitled to harden them and ratify, if you like, pass judgment on them and then decide to use somebody else for my purposes. I'm God. I'm allowed to do that. And you as a pot can't go, that wasn't fair. You promised. You promised we'd be fine. You promised we'd be safe. God's saying, yeah, but your response to my promise puts the promise in jeopardy. Just like Nineveh's response to my promise of judgment meant they got saved, your response to my promise of blessing has meant you have been hardened. Do you see how if you read it that way, it just helps hope a lot with what's going on here. And that's got several implications with, for biblical theology. Israel is a pot that's spoiled in the potter's hand and they will face exile, even though God has promised to bless them. That's what Jeremiah is saying in his day. Paul is then using that story and saying it's the same today. Israel is in sin, and because they are, God has reconsidered the good he was going to do them, and you now can't go, oh, well, no, you're not allowed to do that, because you, as a pot, can't tell the potter he's wrong. Actually, it's your sin that's led to this predicament. And I think that, therefore, this pot potter analogy is actually targeted specifically at Israel. And also that prophetic promises are not supposed to be cast iron guarantees of the future in most cases. Prophetic promises are there to provoke response of repentance and faith. That's by the by. So that's a third factor. Consideration four, a bit briefer, but we've got to bear it in mind, our, our limited perspective, right? And we do have a very limited perspective on that, on these, on these issues. I just want to pull this out for a second. We do have a limited perspective on a lot of these issues, which means we don't see sometimes what God is doing in them, okay? And people, that really, really bothers us. The doctrine of the idea of election, we find very upsetting because we think the idea that God has chosen what to do with people is morally reprehensible. First, we've got to put that in the context of what's going on. And when we do, we'll find that a lot of those things are much, much easier to understand. But we also need to know that sometimes our reaction against God is itself based in a very limited perspective that we have. Right? election bothers people firstly because it's unfair. Some get blessings and others don't, and that's unfair. And I would say in in that sense, yes, election is unfair, but it's unfair in the right direction. Here's what I mean by that. You know the story of the workers in the vineyards, right? They all do work in the fields. And then at the end of the day, the guys who've just arrived get given a wage and the guys who've been there all day working say, wow, this is amazing. Check this out. If they've been given this wage, I must get loads more and they get given exactly what, God, what, what the master agreed with them. And they go away grumbling and saying, this is unfair. We worked harder than them. And the master is saying, well, it is unfair, but it's unfair in the right direction. You got exactly what you deserved. They got more than they deserved. So if I've been unfair at all, which I kind of have, you haven't all got the same. You haven't all got the same hourly rates. But you have got exactly what we agreed. And if I've now decided to pour out blessings on them, that's, not, that's unfair in the right direction, right? That's gracious, that's not vindictive. You and I, you've got on terms. You've you been judged fairly in light of your work. These guys have been given even more, and that should be a cause for celebration, not a cause for rejection. Okay, so I think election, in that, you could say it's unfair. I think that wouldn't be a bad word in some ways. I don't, it's not the best word, but it's, I think it's okay. But it's unfair in the right direction. I think that's important. The, the scandal in the gospel is not that anybody gets judged. The scandal is that anybody gets saved. It's unfair in the right direction. All of us would be treated justly according to our sin if we were all judged eternally. If God hardened all of us because we've all chosen to sin. So for God then to say, right, okay, you've chosen to sin, I'll harden you in sin. That would be righteous and just of God. But the unfairness is in the opposite direction. The unfairness is, how on earth did he save anybody? So nobody facing God on judgment day is going to say, I don't know what you were thinking hardening so-and-so. I think people will be saying, I don't know what you're thinking saving anybody. Second reason election bothers people is because it seems to rule out real human choices. And this, I'm afraid, is just one of those things that is a mystery that you and I are not able to fathom properly because we are human finite beings and it's impossible to do. But I can illustrate why that's true, right? There are elements of the relationship between God and us that are almost impossible to understand, and I think this is one. If I make a choice, it makes it feel like it isn't God. So we operate with a seesaw model, right? If it's my choice, then it can't be God's. And if it's God's choice, it can't be mine. And maybe it's a little bit of both, but it can't be all of both, and that's not the way the Bible pictures it. Who studied? Anybody studied Macbeth at school? Okay. Who's who killed Macbeth? Macduff or Shakespeare? Okay. Who killed him? Macduff, Shakespeare. Which one, Which was it? And you go, well, both, but in different ways and at different levels, and it's not really that kind of a question, all right? Macduff freely chooses. But Shakespeare freely chooses. How does that work? Well, and I'm not saying we are quite like characters in a play, it's an analogy, but it may help you get your head around oh, so there are times when two agents are both freely at work in one situation and somehow both are compatible in a way we don't understand. If you don't like that, um, and I understand you might not, um, you might find this analogy a little bit more helpful. Imagine you are a two dimensional creature and you are now looking at this object, okay? now. I kind of imagine this little button bit isn't on the end because that slightly makes the, makes the picture a little bit more confusing, okay? So what shape is this two-dimensional object, friends, over in that part of the room? It's a circle. What shape is this two-dimensional object to people over in that part of the room? It's an oblong or a kind of a weird square or a weird oblong with a button on the end, right? Now, You could have a big argument with those guys if you were two-dimensional creatures looking at this object. You would say, no, it's not. It's oblong. You fool. How can you possibly think that's circular? You don't even know what a circle is, moron. And they could say the same thing in reverse. And the reason would, of course, be that you're both looking at something that you're not fully wired to understand or express within the limitations of your knowledge. And I think free will and predestination is like that. I think if the question is, do, do human beings choose or does God? I think the answer is just yes. Yeah? And I I know that's annoying. And I know a lot of people go, I came to this seminar expecting an answer to that question. I think that's the best I've got. And I think it's right that it is. Because actually you are limited. And for Macbeth to be able to figure out who had killed him, Shakespeare or Macduff, would just be beyond what it is to be Macbeth. And I think the same is true of you, I'm afraid. Thirdly, election bothers people because it makes it sound like it's God's fault that people are sent to hell. People think of it like the sorting hat in Harry Potter. Right? And you will be in eternal damnation, you know, or something like that, as if it's just completely arbitrary uh, that you would get sent in one place rather than another. But actually, again, it's not viewed that way at all in the Bible because it is not God's fault. In fact, it's, it's God's fault, if you like, if you can use that word, it's God's fault that anybody gets saved, but it's human's fault that anybody gets judged. Because again, so imagine this Calvin The ground of discrimination that exists among men is the sovereign will of God and that alone. But the ground of damnation to which the reprobate are consigned is sin and sin alone. In other words, if you get judged, that's because you did it. But if you get saved, it's because God overrode your sinful judgment and rescued you anyway. So who's seen Forrest Gump? Oh, that's wow, a lot. That's an old movie now. But okay, good. So um, you remember there's that thing where Forrest rescues Lieutenant Dan, even though Lieutenant Dan doesn't want to be rescued. He wants to die. And Forrest rescues him anyway. Now, I think, let's wind that story through in two different ways. Imagine Lieutenant Dan is dying there, Forrest f- tries to force himself upon him, and Lieutenant Dan goes, no, no, I want to die, I want to die, and, fo- and if pushes him and fights him off, and eventually Forrest goes, okay, I'll go and rescue someone else. I think you would agree that it's Lieutenant Dan's fault that he's died, rather than Forrest's, yeah? But if instead Forrest says, in spite of your fighting and punching and spitting and hating me for doing this, I'm going to overpower you and rescue you anyway, I think you'd say the credit goes to Forrest and not to Lieutenant Dan, Yeah? So I think you and I are like Lieutenant Dan, going, I don't want to be saved. I don't want to be saved. I want to sin. I want to live my own life. I want to find... And God, in some of our cases, in a glorious act of grace, in fact, in many, many cases, overpowers that sinful heart and rescues us anyway. But if in that context, God was to say, okay, fine, I will leave you to what you want and go and rescue somebody else instead, which is what's happened in Israel's generation. He said, I'm going to leave Israel. I'm going to harden them in their sin and go and get someone else, the Gentiles. You wouldn't have any basis to say that what forests or God had done was somehow unjust if it's unfair at all it's unfair in the right direction finally the freedom of grace we've got to consider the freedom of grace and I'll be very quick through on this but I just want there's a few quotes towards the bottom here which I want to get if the difference between those who are saved and those who aren't is at our end then grace is diminished if the reason why you're a believer and your friend isn't is simply because of something you did or decided ultimately grace as in free grace isn't really free. Right? If, uh, you can say, my, you know, it's because of amazing grace that I'm saved. If ultimately, the, re- the difference between you and your unbelieving friend is that you have done something better than they did, it's not quite grace as the Bible presents it. If the difference instead is that God has done something to you, then that's what grace really is. And there's a number of things Paul says. Before the boys had done anything good or bad, but in order that God's purpose and election might stand. Not because of works, but his call. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If it by works, it would not be by grace. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be grace. Jesus says the same thing. You didn't choose me. I chose you. That's what grace is. And that's a very odd concept to most of us, because most of us feel like, instinctively, we chose God. But actually, behind it all, the working of the Holy Spirit to bring us to that point is the difference, ultimately, between you and somebody who doesn't. And so here's just three, three quotes plus another extra one, which I like at the end, right? George Mueller, who founded Mueller's Orphanages. You've probably heard of him, or may, maybe. I had been much opposed to the doctrine of election. But after he studied the New Testament, he then came to convince this is what, be convinced this is what it teaches. I hated it. I didn't believe it. And then I studied the Bible, because it didn't feel right. And then I studied the Bible, and I thought, I think that's what it's actually saying. Charles Spurgeon. This you may relate to this. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. One weeknight I was sitting in the house of God, I wasn't thinking much about the preacher's sermon because I didn't believe it, which I quite like. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? I shouldn't have sought him unless there'd been some influence in my mind previously to make me seek him. How came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. But how came I to read the Scriptures? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that He was the author of my faith. I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. George Whitefield, I know Christ is all in all. Man's nothing. He has a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven until God worketh in him to will and do his good pleasure. And then my final one, which is more about the loss of salvation, which I think the same thing's true, really. John MacArthur, if you could lose your salvation, you would. I love that line. If you could, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But that's not where it's based. That's not ultimately divine sovereignty means that you are not responsible in the end for the difference between persevering faith and non-persevering faith. You have to carry it out. You have to work it through. But God ultimately is the one who is ensuring it takes place. I think those five considerations, like wider context, two biblical background bits on Pharaoh and Jeremiah, and then the freedom of grace and the unfairness objection. I think if you factor in all five of those things, you'll be able to make a bit more sense of it. But I'm not claiming it's easy. I'm happy to take questions now. And it is a challenge. I know it's hot in here as well. So thank you very much for listening well. Um, But we will take a few questions now. But thank you. Yes. If God hardened Pharaoh's hearts, wasn't he obstructing his free will? Um, I think, in the sense that Paul uses the concept of hardening, no, actually, I, I don't think he was. I think that hardening, in a sense, is. Do you know what you know what a word to ratify means? Which is where, it's where in a if you like, you have a government system that there's a. For instance, you might get the House of Commons pass something, and then the Lords decide we are going to ratify that. We are going to agree with the judgment you've made and also sign off on it. In doing that, you're not really overriding the will of the other house. What you're doing is saying, I am going to add my signature to the thing that you've just said. The, and the, the president does it in America. He can decide to sign a bill or veto it. Congress have made the choice, but he then says, I am now validating and stamping and rendering certain the decision you've made. I think in the context of the Jeremiah Pop, Potter thing, Paul is saying that he's, God, God does that. That actually, he doesn't override free will. He, in many ways, he does the exact opposite. He allows free will to have its full devastating influence in our lives. In that sense, we are, human free will is even in. If you like my choices, I, you might, free will is an odd concept because I have the choice to eat Weedabix or eat cornflakes or whatever. But actually, I don't have the free will to live a righteous life. I need God to save me in order to get that kind of freedom. My free will will always take me to hell. I think that's the idea. It's just the nature of what it is to be a fallen person. So I don't think God is overriding Ferris free will in many ways. I think he's allowing it to do exactly what it would do if left unchecked and signing off on it and then establishing it or ratifying it or securing its implications. So I think it's the equivalent of the president signing a bill. Say so you have chosen this and I'm now, yes, you are going to stick with what you've said. And I think the reason I say that from the context is because the hardening is happening at both ends, so there is no indication in this story that Pharaoh is not responsible for what he's doing at all. It's very clear Pharaoh is the villain of the story, even to my my son. Um, unfortunately, in his case, that's why he likes him. But we'll we'll deal with that in time. It's okay. Okay. Other questions. If man is incapable of good, well, how can he be held responsible? I don't think in a way i don't think man is incapable of good you see. so I, so i don't think that the, the issue is that no no human being can ever do anything good i don't think the issue is see sometimes the language of you know the reformation language of total depravity if you've heard that could sound like it meant no human being can ever do anything morally good i think the reality is that we all know lots and lots of people who do good good things they are good they may not be the best work they could have done and they may not be doing them all for perfect motivation, but actually there is there is the capacity. Human beings are able to choose, to know the difference between good and evil. And Adam was able to know the difference. And he would he could, and he would have done some good things, but he chose ultimately what was evil. So I don't think the Bible ever allows you to think, no, human beings are not responsible for the choices they make because they really didn't have a choice. I think the way the Bible presents it is, human beings are responsible for their evil choices. And human beings gravitate that way and naturally go, oh, okay, I want evil. I want idolatry. I want other stuff. And it, it, but the, but where, the, where the divine overpowering comes in is not in the leaning towards evil way. It's the one that leads towards good. So the shock, it should not be human beings are, have their free will, if you like, constrained to do evil. The shock is, no, we have our free will constrained so that we do, so that we choose good. It's only by the Spirit coming and making us alive that we are able to choose good. So we're responsible, I think, for all of our sinful choices. But the choice to follow Christ is ultimately a work of God in our hearts. And I think that is that way round. That's what I mean by unfair in the right direction. Um, hence Lieutenant Dan and you know the other some of the other analogies. It's a really good question. Any others? Okay. Brilliant question, right? That's a that's a question with teeth. Ripple of I'll, I'll repeat it, but ripple of applause for him anyway, right? Take it on faith, it was a good question. So in 1 Timothy 2.4, it says God desires all people to be saved. Does that mean that God doesn't get what he wants? Right. If God wants everybody to be saved and not everybody is saved, which I think is tragically, the Bible indicates that that's true. I'd lo- in a way, I'd love to believe that everybody was saved, but I don't think from the world it looks like that's certainly not true. And it looks that way in Scripture as well. So does that mean that God doesn't get what he wants? That was actually the question that Rob Bell, if you read his book Love Wins a while back, big controversial book, um, that's why he, he said, oh, does God get what he wants? And it was a, it's a, actually a well-worded question. I think he's wrong about the answer, but it's a good question. Um, and I think the answer is that, that, in, that in God, if, effectively, I think you have that issue no matter, almost no matter what view you take of the world, that God wills, that for God to say, I want this to happen, is not necessarily the same as saying, and it will certainly happen because I want it, because God allows other factors to influence what takes place and not simply an overriding of his will over all other things sometimes it 's possible to will more than one thing at once and to weigh two factors and at the same time you might have, you might even have that does anybody ever have a thing where you're what you, obviously some of you you have a sports team you follow? And others of you, you have, you're watching a game from a neutral perspective. I had this a little bit yesterday with the Ashes, right? So I hope I'm not spoiling the ending to tell you that we bowled Australia out for 60 yesterday, right? When you're hearing the news of that kind of thing, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, I was sitting there uh, while Joe Mack was speaking, and I occasionally was checking to see what the score was. I know that none of you ever do that, right? But I was, and, uh, and some of you are doing it right now. And while I was, there was two wills. In me, one of them was I will England just to drive them into the dust and destroy them and crush them because I hate the Australians. Sorry, Um, but there's another will as well, which is I don't want this game to be all over by tomorrow afternoon. I I actually want there to be something of a fight of this. I want there to be, and you have, I actually had conflicting wills, and I'm using it as a silly example, but it's possible to do that. I think you'd be aware with them disciplining children, right? You don't have kids yet, I imagine most of you, but it is meaningful to say to a child, I don't want to whatever it is. I don't want to implement this punishment or whatever it is, send you to your room, cut you off from going to that event that you were going to go to. It is meaning, when parents say that, they mean it. They mean, I don't want to. I would much rather you did this. But because I also have other considerations, including training you and being just and right and carrying through on what I said, I'm going to do what I don't want to do because I also want something else. And I think the reality is that God also does that. I think he wants all to be saved but he also wants to make sure that sin doesn't enter the new creation and the result is I, I'm, I i have to judge people even if they are behaving that way and even though i want to save them and i want them to respond ultimately i do also want other things too which means not everybody is saved and actually almost every christian whatever view they have of what i'm saying about election almost every christian concedes that i think the same is true of healing i think god wants to heal everybody and sometimes he allows people not to be healed yeah, often in fact. I think that's consistent because I think God, like us, is able to will multiple things. And sometimes that means deferring some wills to others. So let's have maybe one more question and then we'll wrap it up. Yes. Okay, great question. Because God is entitled to do whatever he wants, is he entitled to save somebody and let then let them go to a point where they no longer believe? I think the answer is yes but he doesn't personally, right? So I think, yes, he would be entitled to do that. And I don't think it would be inconsistent with a Christian vision of God to allow that people could lose their salvation. I don't think that would mean, oh goodness, he can't be the real God. So I have lots of people who would take a different view from me on some of what I'm saying today, who I think are absolutely worshiping the same God as me, reading the same Bible as me, love it the same way I do. That's not an issue for me. Yes, he could do that and be consistent, but I don't think he does. I think he actually ensures, by the gift of the Spirit, that people who are truly believers. A lot of people can look like believers or make a response, an emotional response and not follow it through. But I think if people who are truly made alive by God will persevere. Is my view in a very, very little nutshell? Okay. Thank you so much, everybody, for your attention on a hot day. I'll stick around for a minute if you want to ask me something else. Thank you for coming. Tomorrow, the last one in this series, Dan Hater is going to be looking at the riddles of Revelation, and it's going to be a blinder to finish the week. So thanks for coming.